Hello and welcome to Doc Arena Podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whitaker, and in this fortnightly podcast series, I talk to filmmakers about their documentaries, both in terms of the subjects they choose and the way in which they fund, craft and distribute their work. This week we'll be talking about a documentary made by the award-winning producer-director Jeannie Finlay. Your fat friend charts the rise of the writer and activist Aubrey Gordon from anonymous blogger to New York Times best-selling author and beloved podcaster. In the film, we see the difficulties Gordon faces in coming out of the shadows of online anonymity and revealing herself to her fans, the internet trolls and her family. And in watching that process, many will be inspired to rethink their own views on fatness and anti-fat bias in general. Like all Finlay's films, it's full of empathy and humour, and I found it to be hugely moving and thought-provoking. And here's my conversation with Jeannie Finlay. So Jeannie Finlay, thanks a million for joining me. It's great to see you. Could you start off, I suppose, by describing the film for people who aren't aware of it? Uh, Hello, Ross. Nice to see you. Yeah, my film's called Your Fat Friend, and it follows the rise of Aubrey Gordon, who started out as an anonymous blogger, writing under the name Your Fat Friend about her lived experience as a fat lady in the world. She describes herself as a fat lady about town. Um, But she describes in her writing um, what it means to navigate the world and the bias, the anti-fat bias that she encounters and how that shapes her existence. The idea that fat is not a feeling, (laughs) It's, it's an actual body size and how um yeah that bias shapes the conversations she has at work um in public spaces and also her family in big and also in small ways um I started following her about six years ago because I read the first writing that she put out into the world that went viral I was one of the first people to read her and I knew I wanted to make a film about fatness I'd been doing it for a while and as soon as I read her piece I knew that I'd found something really special and that I wanted to meet Aubrey and so the film sort of encompasses her going from an anonymous blogger and completely anonymous in the world to a best-selling New York Times best-selling author and we sort of see her come out publicly to step into the spotlight and the Sorry, I'm giving you a very, very long synopsis here. But the film's really about her family seeing her. The film is about an exercise in visibility. It sounds weird to say that fatness is kind of invisible, but it's something that we don't always talk about in society because it feels uncomfortable or full of shame. And Aubrey's got very proud parents who love her and incredibly proud of her talent, but her dad at the beginning of the film is unable to say the word fat out loud. And by the end, he sees her fully. And that's sort of the emotional journey on we go on is seeing her family not just under not just see what she's talking about, but like getting it. They get it and they understand it. So it's about understanding a topic rather than thinking it's like a hot oven that you shouldn't touch and that you avoid it because you're going to get burned, it's like, oh, we get it. We understand. Your experience of the world is is different. And that sucks. When I was watching it, I mean, it was a few months ago and I saw it in uh, Dublin, and I, I absolutely loved it. And it was a fantastic screening, and you've come back to Dublin since, and, and you're all over the place with the film, which is fantastic. I felt like there was kind of two things happening at once. You were telling the story of her coming out, uh, her becoming visible, 
Um, and you're also showing her changing the world, I suppose. So she's changing the world herself on camera, uh, while you're, the engine of your story is, is the visibility. And when you put the two together, it's very powerful because you have, as she becomes more visible, you feel like she's changing the world more. I wonder almost was it difficult for you to keep focus on your through line, you know, that this is what this is because um, there's kind of a lot going on there. Yeah, it is. It is a lot, I guess. Um, oh, I should say we've now been joined by Eddie the cat, so he may may or may not vocally interrupt what we're talking about. Um, but um, I guess one of the things that I was trying to, I, I was thinking about the edit as like a plat. So there's sort of, there's a few threads going on. One of them is just an, a knowledge of what anti-fat bias is and how that looks like. So Aubrey learning about how to communicate that to an audience. She started out in political organizing and was behind the vote for equal marriage and trans rights on the West Coast. You know, she worked um, for LGBTQIA rights for over 13 years. And so when she talks about you can change the world, that isn't like a, a pie in the sky sort of idea. She believes that change is possible because she's done it before. Um, so that's sort of her starting point. And then the film, you know, what I'm trying to show is like, how, what does that mean in reality? What does that actually look like? But the things that I was most interested in was what does it, what does it mean to have significant conversations with the people that you love most? Um, so I think I feel like Aubrey's journey starts, but then we're also following Pam and Rusty, her divorced parents, and how they play a role in that and how they go on a journey. I keep saying journey, and it's a word I absolutely hate, but we definitely, because I've made the film over six years for various reasons, pandemic and other films... <laughs> as sort of contributory parts of that, because there was a, a great deal of time elapsed, there was actually room for a lot of growth. I mean, who knew that Aubrey was going to amass a massive audience for her work? You know, her podcast maintenance phase, which she launched during the pandemic. She did the thing that we were all trying to do in the pandemic. She launched a creative project that's just reached 60 million downloads. You know, it's, it's a behemoth. And in her becoming visible to herself, to her family, for you to be able to show that level of, I suppose, personal growth or, or the connection with her family, you need really amazing access and you really need to have got to know those people, presumably. Did the six years help in that regard as well? Or, and, and how do you, as a filmmaker, approach building the trust so that you can capture those moments that exemplify the story that you're telling? Um, yeah, I think that the time elapsed really helped at the beginning of the process. I did some initial filming with Pam, Aubrey's mum, who's really amazing. And she sort of said, yeah, that's fine. I don't want to do any more filming. And then I think because it took like four years in, she knew that I wasn't like a, I don't know, like a tabloid hack. Because often I think for I think for a lot of people, when you sort of approach them and say you want to make a film, 
they read documentary can be many things it can be every factual programming that you've ever that you're you've ever seen and if your approach is different you know I think the approach that I take as an independent filmmaker is very careful about the money I take and the stories I take I take all this stuff really seriously but you know I sort of have to prove that a bit because it, you can't take that for granted so I think the amount of time it took definitely helped with that also you know things became clearer I think for Pam and Rusty um, just in terms of the amount of time they had to sit with what Aubrey was doing in the world uh, yeah they could see the effect you know like getting a book deal and people you know the book selling out and doing really well you know, I think that's really different from, hey, my daughter's writing for free <laughs> on a blog. I think it's, you know, it's a different proposition. But in terms of um, trust, you know, I want to be able to keep the promises that I make and having some sort of level of control over production allows me to do that. I'm a producer on all of my projects because I want to, make and deliver the films with as much care as I would hope to be dealt with. And I know that that's not always possible. You know, we're, we're talking about projects that cost hundreds of thousands of pounds or euros to make. Yeah, and one of the things, and I had a couple of small conversations with you over the last few years through social media or whatever, I felt like there were maybe certain kind of set pieces that you wanted to capture that could show the little, I suppose, microaggressions in the world towards fat people, the little kind of small biases that have become part of normal conversation that we probably have stopped noticing or, or never even considered. Was that something you had in mind? Like the one that, that springs to mind to me is, is the dinner with uh, Aubrey and, and some family friends and, and, her, and her, I think it was her mum. Was that part of your thinking? I, you know, if I'm to get this story across the way I'd like to, there's a few situations I need to make happen or be there for at least. Uh, yeah. I mean, I learned a lot when I was making Seahorse about Freddie McConnell's um, journey. I'm saying it again. You know, Freddie McConnell, a British trans guy having a baby. And I followed his whole pregnancy and giving birth. And with that, I sort of really learned that sometimes it isn't even the moment that happens. It's the anxiety that a moment might happen is really powerful in people's lives um, because there's always the possibility of something bad happening. With Aubrey, I would say that bias that she experiences, whether that's by email or people <laughs> commenting or being aggressive in the street, that's pretty common. But the things that are sort of harder to capture are yeah, are these little microaggressions. And it seemed, I think those things shout very loudly, even though they're small moments. And I hope to catch one in the wild, but it is hard when you've got a camera there because everyone's sort of on their best behavior. What I would also say is that I think that like fat jokes and people referring to their weight and, oh, I'm going to regret this. Oh, I better go and do a workout. Commenting on people's bodies. These are things that people 
don't realize are really hurtful and harmful. And so they happen all of the time. So of course, as soon as I start filming a Thanksgiving dinner and Aubrey sat right there, a thin woman sits down and makes a joke when they're doing the toast for the dinner. Um, my doctor says, turn your scales 15 pounds down before you go to bed tonight. <laughs> How funny. And it's just gross. Um, and the reason why that goes ahead and is completely uncommented on is because this sort of stuff happens all the time, all the time. Just ask anyone, you know, and also like praising weight loss. Look at every, you could pick up, you could go out now to the corner shop, pick up absolutely any newspaper and there will be stories about weight loss and weight gain. Um, the Grammys, who wore what and whether... Um, it was flattering or they looked good. Everyone has got a lot of opinions about what people look like and the best way to get thin. Can I ask you a little bit about working remotely? Because you mentioned the pandemic and presumably to keep this going, you had to do a certain amount of that. You know, and I suspect a lot of people have picked up new skills over the last few years. You know, we tend to want to always be there when we're making a documentary. Has the remote working situation evolved your thinking on that did you pick up any new skills along the way it's interesting when i started working on game of thrones the last watch i had a team of eight people um who were based in belfast and because i was making seahorse at the same time i would do one week on the edit of seahorse and then one week on game of thrones so i'd be back in belfast and i couldn't be there all of the time it's an impossibility. And so I gave up a lot of my sort of preciousness about I've got to hold the camera or I've got to be alongside the DP because ultimately I know that, you know, I'll be there in the edit. The The things that people are filming is because I've set, I, because I've set that up. Do you know what I mean? So um, when the, <laughs> when I was out in Portland in February, 2020, um, I was so confident that I was going to be back in the March. I left cameras out there um, and ended up teaching Aubrey how to film on my little GH5, my little 4K camera, uh, with sort of varied results. Like there was one point where she thought that if it was overblown, that that meant it was in focus. So we had like a load of footage that came back and it was all soft. And she's like, I followed all the instructions. And yeah, it discovered that it was just overblown. But the thing that we sort of, I had constant communication with her about was, what's a good thing to film? And this is a film about the present tense, um, about being present tense in your body right now, but also about like, what's going on now? How do we capture it now? So rather than retrospectively telling a story, we need to be telling it in the moment. And so Aubrey knew that uh, when Adele responded to an article she'd written to turn the camera on or when she just launched her podcast and she'd gone for dinner with her um, dad and stepmom to, to take the camera and turn it on because I was like, the small moments are the thing that will help us to feel like we're in tandem with you on, on this. Um, so yeah, so that, I mean, it feels silly at, at the moment and you know, you overshoot, like I'll shoot 300 hours, but that's fine. Would it make you be open to 
working remotely in, in other situations, even if you don't need to? Maybe, but I would say that I think that there's a combination of capturing the story as it's happening, but those moments of not revelation, but the turning points in the film are often the moments when I'm there with the person and there is this sort of, I've seen it, I've seen people write about it as like casual intimacy, um, which is a sort of hard won casualness where I'm with the people. So even like on Game of Thrones, when we're doing these enormous sort of set pieces on a set of 500 extras, the key sort of emotional turns in the story are the bits where I filmed one-on-one with the person with my camera. And because you can't, you can't outsource intimacy. I think that that's really, that's what I've learned. And, but I have to think carefully about how I, I don't know how I um, apply my resources and time. (laughs) What's possible, you know, with the pandemic, it was just, wasn't, just wasn't happening and you know we've all learned that you can still speak to people on zoom and for it to be effective it can be effective if you look across the body of your work and i think of a couple of the more recent films they have the power i suppose to change perception in a very obvious way in terms of seahorse and in terms of your fat friend you know there's huge empathy in all your films but these films i feel like you know, you're going to walk out of watching them and, and you could you could change how you feel about certain things. Is is that something that is evolving you feel in your work? Is that a motivation that has come into what you're doing? Uh, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think as I get older and I don't know, don't get me wrong, I still love... The thing that's interesting is like this is... Your Fat Friends is my ninth film and I thought there might be a point where... I felt less love for it, but I don't. I feel even more love for filmmaking. It feels exciting and um, provocative. And I'd still get a real lot out of it because I want to push myself and learn new stuff all the time. And, you know, I'm not on a mission to change the world at all, but I do think I want to make films where I feel like we're maybe not having that conversation or maybe my film can contribute to a conversation and make things clear. And definitely like with Your Fat Friend and Seahorse, I could see that there was a, like there's a real power in actually speaking to the people that are affected by these issues. So you make films with people, not just about them. You know, a lot of stories of fatness are thin people's fantasies about how awful it would be to be fat. I mean, look at The Whale. We talk about you know things like shallow hal or the clumps as this sort of like vulgar representation of fatness that we would never do now but then you you look at the whale and that's fat suit journey got an oscar you know and i just watched wonka which made by a beloved filmmaker great fun film and there's a whole running fat gag all the way through the film and it's just like can no one see this? It's like, this is terrible. This is obvious. This is surrounding us right now. But yeah, I would say as I get older, because the industry is in such a weird place in terms of raising money and 
you know, there are options to make dockbusters for streamers. If you're not going down that route, then why not make something that has a, a lasting legacy that can do something? It's not my aim to change the world, but if it changes, I think that the films have long lives and that feels really satisfying. Like we were at a screening of, I was at a screening of Your Fat Friend in Leeds and two people got up in the audience and stood up and said, my child is trans. Two different women stood up and said, my child is trans and I understood them because I'd seen your film Seahorse. I knew that it wasn't the end of the world. And I was just like, oh my God, that's, that's amazing. It may seem like a small thing, but it's a sort of impactful, real change in the world. Yeah, and you just want more people to see these films. I mean, I think that's, and that's sums up, I suppose, the most difficult part of it in this kind of corporate age of, you call them dockbusters. I mean, what, where do you see us in terms of where documentary is at now? And I mean, there's a lot of really interesting conversations and some people are <laughs> revealing them in themselves in some ways through things that they're saying and and so on. Um where is the world of documentary now and where do you fit into it? Oh my God, that's a big question. I I was talking to Lizzie Gillett this morning, who's a producer at Misfits, ex-Passion, you know, and their Superman documentary just sold for $15 million at um, Sundance to uh, Warner Brothers, who own all the IP for Superman. And so, you know, at one end of the scale, you've got films like that, which massive amounts of money and that will be seen by a big global audience um it's interesting when uh my game of thrones film the last watch went out that was broadcast in the game of thrones slot and so it was seen by tens of millions of people around the world and it trended on Twitter for two days. I got sent thousands of memes and photos of people crying, did like loads of press. But what was so weird with that is it felt like it brought, it shone really brightly and then it just died. Like after three weeks, it was like it didn't exist at all. It's like content that's just consumed and then is gone. And it's wild seeing people like clip bits out of the film and it just sort of lives on in memes and TikTok and YouTube, which I kind of enjoy, but is also weird. Whereas films like Seahorse and Sand It Out, which I made in 2011, and this film, I'm we're having like real communal experiences, like the experience of taking the film on around the UK, selling out the largest regional film theatres, doing double... Um, screenings back to back and people finding community that feels like a really valuable and important thing as well and we've been doing the way that we were able to take the film on the road is that we did two global watch parties that involved people from many different countries watching the film and we made we did community building as part of that as well and it feels like a much like longer, like the film's going to have a much longer life, weirdly, than my Game of Thrones one. Like I think it touches people more um, deeply or, 
I don't know. I just think it's life feels... Um, I don't know how to quite articulate it. Like people are more invested. They're more invested and it's it feels mess it feels much less like a product that people are consuming and then they're done. It's part of a larger conversation that's going on. I mean, I don't know, what do you think? Where do you think they fit in? It's, it's I'm just a I'm just a one woman in Nottingham making independent films, you know, and I'm prolific and I make one and I'm already on to the next. Um, and it's hard for me often as someone, especially as I'm outside all the London hullabaloo, it's hard for me sometimes to get perspective on what it is that I'm doing. I sometimes get more perspective when I'm in America. It's weird. What I'm wondering about it and what I feel about it is that amongst the kind of celebrity driven docs and, and, you know, the kind of docs that are obviously for a very large audience on Netflix or wherever, you know, are we almost seeing a gap in the market for, you know, films like the one you're making or, or other films that have are full of empathy and, 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 you know, will move people if they simply get to see them. And it's almost like it's come around full circle because I feel like we were having this conversation kind of 10 or 12 years ago and people were getting more into sort of distributing their own work. And there was, um, you know, you know, people, and you, you did it a lot yourself, raising money through kind of um, various means online and, and so on. And it feels like that kind of went away for a while. And, you know, I, I looked online a few days ago or maybe a couple of weeks ago because I was just interested in what are people doing in self-distribution. I couldn't find hardly any case studies. Whereas 10 years ago, you know, there were several people doing it every year all around the world. Um, and I wonder, have we got back into that idea of like, you make your film and you get it into the biggest festival you can and then hope that one of these kind of few, there aren't that many major buyers will buy it. And if not, you're, 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 you know, you're screwed. But you're proving, and I and I think it's definitely the case that for a lot of films, there is an audience out there if you're kind of willing to think about who they are and where they might like to watch it. So it's interesting to talk to you about the distribution side of the global watch party. Is that where do you house that? You know, do that does that help you to raise the funding to then bring it on the road? Or yeah, it's that's exactly what it did. So. Um... Like in full transparency, like we knew the film won the audience award at Sheffield and I think it sold more public tickets than any other film has ever sold at Sheffield. We sold out the Crucible Theatre, so it's like wild. Almost 800 people rammed into the Crucible Theatre and we sold out all our screenings at Tribeca as well very, very quickly. We'd been put in one of the smallest screens and they very quickly moved us into a bigger screen. So quite quickly I could see, oh, this is lots of potential. And we made the film of the old because we started this six years ago, we used the model of you keep all you make it with soft money, so you keep all your rights available, so you so a streamer can just walk in and take the film and you're able to offer that you get your worldwide sale. When it became clear that we were one of many films last year that was released that was not going to achieve that, there was a point where it was just like, well, does this film, 
does it just die? And we've got a very active Instagram account. Um, we spent quite a bit of time on Instagram. And I think when we released the trailer the first time, it got watched 40,000 times in like two days. So I could see <laughs> that there's an audience there. And people are writing on Instagram, take my money. Let me see the film. I want to see the film. And so we did like a healthy sort of rollout at festivals, but it became really clear people want to see this. So we applied to the British Film Institute for distribution money. And the way that distribution money in the UK has changed is that because it's public money, you have to show that you're supporting cinema as a whole in the UK. Now, I would argue we are because we've been, we have made all venues that we have shown the film at to embrace seat size as an access issue and publish seating and think about alternate seating for people who are fat so that they can be comfortable and they can make choices about when, when, whether they want to go there. But, you know, it, we weren't able to raise any distribution money. So last November, we're sat on a project. We know the audience is there. No one will fund us at all. All traditional routes to distribution are just like, well, I think that there's an uncomfortableness around the subject matter because it's because it's fat, because it's saying something that may not be acceptable. Um, and so I just decided, Suzanne Alizar, the consulting producer and myself, were just like, let's take everything that we learn from distributing Sound It Out back in... 2011 when we took it to 50 cinemas but let's do it really smartly this time that's no crowdfunding I didn't ever want to have to do crowdfunding again so I just said let's do let's do a global watch party um and we'll do a live event where people can come along and um listen to me and Aubrey and we'll get someone funny or cool to host it so we got Josie Long involved in that and let's limit the tickets. So let's just do it as a drop. So decided to do it, took it to Together Films, told them that this is what we were going to do. They suggested that we work with Kinema, which is a new platform in the States, because they could host everything under their um, umbrella. And we'd set the tickets at $25 a head because it's a fundraiser. So it's a decent investment and that we wouldn't have to, we wouldn't cannibalize our audience. So we sort of figured, oh, well, we'll do this. And we sold, I launched it. I made all like the little graphics, launched it on Instagram. Within two hours, we'd made more money than we applied to the BFI for. And it meant that with this money's free money in that we can do what we want with it. We don't have to write a report. We don't have to pay it back because if you get money from the British Film Institute, it's a loan. This is investment in the film. And it also meant that we could make choices about how we wanted to spend it. So um, we we qualified the film for the Oscars. We took the film out to New York, played for a week. We were the biggest film that DCTV has, um, had, has had at the cinema since it reopened in New York. We 
made a choice early on that we didn't want to spend 750 to a thousand dollars per for your consideration email it was more important for us to qualify the film for the oscars so that it goes on the oscars player and people would see it like it's useful for me if oscar voters know that i'm serious about this and they can see my work and also just to learn about what that is but I would rather spend the money on a really good publicist and do some targeted press than throw $1,000 away on for your consideration emails. Like I'm a BAFTA voter and I was at the height of like BAFTA season. I was getting, I don't know, 30 of those emails a day. It just seems like money, it's the sound of money being poured down a drain. And similarly, you know, we've, done a, a range of collaborations with artists where instead of spending money on stupid traditional ways of doing things we've collaborated with artists for them to interpret the film and we've made their work into prints um, and sold those as merch at the screenings um, because I know that people this film means a lot to people and they want to take a piece of it home and they might not want the traditional poster. They might want an artist's interpretation of that. And then last night we just launched on Instagram. We commissioned um, Laura Decorum, who's a Nottingham street artist, to do a portrait of Aubrey with the message, treat fat people like people. I love the idea of a sort of giant Aubrey um, in pink on the side of a church that people can go and visit because it's a statement that's leaking out much wider than the film itself. It's just fun. Yeah. I mean, that's fun. Yeah. I mean, surely that's much more fun than handing your film to a distributor and watching them, you know, do some great things and do some things you're thinking, why are they doing that? That doesn't make sense for my film. Are you now distributing the film yourself as well or has someone come on to help you put on screenings and whatnot? Oh, I'm not completely crazy. So we're working with Tull Stories, but it's a collaboration between my production company, Glimmer Films, and Tull Stories. So um, we, so it's like we've had Johnny on contract. So the film opens on Friday in almost 100 cinemas across the UK. We did the... We did 12 cities on our tour and brought Aubrey and then she brought her mum, Pam, with us. So we navigated the UK and hopped over to Ireland, to Dublin. Um, And that was just like getting people pumped. (laughs) But with that, we did, you know, merch and signings. So like epic sign lines. Um for people to meet Aubrey. But, you know, that was a lot. And then next month, next month? It's February now, isn't it? This month, (laughs) we're going out to Big Sky in Montana because I'm doing a retrospective of all of my films. They're showing everything I've ever made. Aubrey's coming. And then we're going to Portland for a homecoming. So we're doing a double premiere at the Hollywood Theatre, legendary cinema in Portland. And then we're showing at in Seattle a couple of days later. At a, it's like a 600-seat Egyptian theatre. We're doing back-to-back screenings there as well. The, the thing that's beautiful about all of this is because we're booking direct, 
we get all the money. Well, we split it with the with the um, theatre. We've not forewalled anything. It's all been, will you take the film? If we had more, I think if we had deeper pockets and it was something we'd not, I think if it was something I'd done before, we'd maybe have forewalled because we would have made more money. But it's much riskier. This was a sort of low-risk way of doing things because I wasn't sure how um, how it would go. But we, we put the tickets up for sale in Portland and they sold out in four minutes for the first screening. It's amazing. Yeah. And forewalling, I suppose, for people who are listening who may not realise, is you, just, you book the theatre at a price and then it's yours to do with whatever you wish. Um, that's amazing. I think that's just all really great. And, and otherwise, when you, you persuade a theater to put it in, you split the, you split the take and there's no loss to you, even if nobody buys a ticket. So you can see why that's a lower risk option um, for people. And, and it's amazing what um, theater owners, cinema owners will do. If you ring them up and say, we have this film. We know there's an audience for it. It's it's people are actually often very supportive. I, I think, but just uh, we want to wrap up. So um, I've used, I've taken enough of your time at this stage. But are, are there any like if there were like two or three things that you've learned from this distribution process? But sound it out back in the day, the you know the films in between, and then you know bringing up to date. Are there a few things that you're kind of like anyone that's distributing their own film? They need to do these things. I mean, it's hard to, I don't know how replicable this is, um, but I would say things like, I think if you make a film for yourself, <laughs> the audience will get it. So I wouldn't be too cynical about making stuff for an audience. I think if you make something really with all of your heart for yourself, then people will feel that and they'll show up. I saw Rick Rubin writing about that yesterday and I was like, yeah, that's what I really believe, actually. Um, and I would be, like, if you're doing things independently, if you're not, if you're going the, if you're going the streamer route, then, you know, great, good for you. Take, take your money and your roses. That's great. But for the majority of films which aren't going to go that route, you've got to think about, um, how are people going to find your film and what are what are the points of human connection and can you access that through the way that you put your film into the world? I think a lot about Sherry Moskandler, who was someone that I heard speak in, when, in 2011 when we were taking uh, Sound It Out to cinemas. And she said, in independent film... People spend far too long thinking about getting pregnant and no one thinks about raising the baby. And as far as I'm concerned, this is all the work. I was an artist before I was a filmmaker. And if you don't think about everything that touches the film as the work, then you're not doing your job. Because if, if no one watches your film, what was the point in making it? So I want the stickers, <laughs> the limited edition artist prints, the Q and A um, screenings, the seating site—I want all of that to be delivered with as much care that went into the edit and the grade and the, you know, the live cellos on the soundtrack. 
it's all the work. And so the hard thing is when you're at your most tired is keeping, <laughs> keeping that work going. But if you can, it's the most satisfying work. I mean, there's nothing quite like standing at the end of a screening, doing a selfie with the host that you brought on, the person you made the film about, and a whole audience on their feet. I mean, it's amazing. Well, well done to you on on doing a brilliant job of getting it out there. But also, it's well worth it because it's a fantastic film and I, I wish you every success with it. I absolutely loved it. I keep telling people about it. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope, it, I hope it does great and it deserves to. So um, best of luck with it and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, for listening to my <laughs> monologue. <laughs> Thanks again to Jeannie for taking part in the podcast. Your Fat Friend is available to watch in selected cinemas around the UK and Ireland from February 9th. Thanks to Stephen Galvin and Film Ireland for supporting the podcast and to film composer Michael Fleming for kindly allowing me to steal his music. You can find more of it at michaelflemingmusic.com. You'll find me on social platforms as Ross Whitaker TV. And of course, thanks to you for listening.